Welcome to the Home Staging Show podcast, the show where we dive deep into the world of home staging and how to build a viable home staging business. I'm your host, Nilin, and in each episode, we explore the latest trends, strategies, and also art of building a vibrant and thriving home staging business. Welcome back to the show. This is episode 178. Before we start the show today, here is a message from our sponsor. We all need powerful statistics to convince potential clients of the benefits of home staging. Stage flow takes away the pain of having to filter spreadsheets or doing calculations. You enter what you know about every sale of the homes that you've staged and let stage flow do the rest. Easy, real-time statistics for the home staging market. Hey, welcome back to another episode of the Home Staging Show. You might have noticed that we're not doing those long, drunk-out intros in the beginning anymore. Frankly, I'm sick of it because I just feel like every time I get on a podcast, I just want to update you what's going on at the school. But then it turns into this long 8 to 10 minutes introduction about everything that's going on at the school. So that's something we're trying to change within the podcast. So you're really maximizing the time of the interview and listening to what's going on. So that's one of the changes we're making. If you have any more suggestions, feel free to DM me on Instagram at Stage for More, or you can hop on the website and fill a support form. All right. So today onto the guests, we have Helen Bartlett, who is a longtime friend of Stage for More. She is an amazing stager out in Kansas, and she's won numerous awards and industry recognition as well. On today's show, she's going to talk about model home staging, which is something that actually listeners wrote in to learn more about. So I'm really excited to have Helen today on the show to talk about model home staging. Helen is a national award-winning home stager and home stylist. She has been staging homes in the metro Kansas City area in both Kansas and Missouri since 2011. She has been awarded several national home staging awards, including the top 10 professional home stagers in the United States for vacant homes, owner-occupied homes, and redesign work, including top professional stager for both owner-occupied and vacant homes. Also recognized on house, she has been awarded several years of service awards, including design and service awards, as well as top influencer and recommended badges for a professional profile. Her work has been featured on local television in Kansas City area, the Kansas City Star, as well as Kansas City Home and Styles magazine. Helen was also featured on the HGTV DIY network show Bargain Mentions, film in Kansas City featuring Tamara Bay. Helen has also served on RISA as both the Kansas City Chapter President and Kansas State President. She also served on the National Board during the 2018-2019 term, acting as chairperson in 2018. In 2017 through 2023, she was chosen as one of the country's top 200 influencers in the interior design industry from Fixer.com. Helen Barlett has co-authored a home staging book called Home Staging, The Power That Sells Real Estate is a guide for homeowners thinking about selling their homes, real estate agents, and anyone thinking about a home staging career. It gives great information, advice, and tips on how to sell your home for top dollars in the shortest amount of time. All right, so without further ado, let's start the show. Hi, Helen. Welcome back to the show. It's been a while since our last podcast episode. So for those listeners who are not familiar with your staging business, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your home staging business? 
Sure. Well, I'm Helen Bartlett and I have a staging business called Refined Interior Staging Solutions here in Kansas City, Kansas. But we are literally a block and a half from the state line of Missouri. So we actually work in both states. As I said, I've had my business for 13 years. We do owner-occupied homes, vacant homes. We do design. We do luxury homes and, you know, just about anything we've done over the years. You know, when you first start off, you'll do anything and you'll take any job. And that's just kind of how it stuck with us. So my preference, of course, is vacant homes or luxury homes, which I love to do because you've got so much creative control over what happens. So that's the good part of the business, right? So... I have been a member of RISA for several years. I've won like the top stager for vacant homes, owner-occupied homes, and redesign, as well as the top 10 several years in a row. I have been named as a top 30 stager by Fixer.com in the United States, one of their top 200 influential people in home design. Some of my work has been shown in local magazines here in Kansas City, the Kansas City Star, our newspaper, you know, won several awards for model homes that we've done, which is why I'm excited to talk to you about this. But yeah, we've kind of done it all. We have two warehouses here in Kansas City, about 9,000 square feet. And, you know, sometimes that stuff is up to my eyeballs and sometimes it's empty and I think I need more. And it's just this crazy, vicious cycle of how do you manage it all? You know, it, it all works out, but there are times that I'm thinking, oh God, I can't bring anything else in here right now. But And I'm at that point right now because we've got a lot of projects going out here in the next few weeks, but we've got a lot of stuff back in our warehouse. So we are excited about getting it out again. There's so much more about you, Helen. Okay. Come on. <laughs> but tell us a little bit about your experience specifically about staging model homes. You're really used to doing vacants and luxuries. I think mm-hmm. model homes fit into that quite well, right? Absolutely. And that's actually how I got started. I I never really targeted a model home. I was doing vacant homes and I was talking to somebody one day at a networking event and she said she works for this builder and would I consider coming out to see their model home? And I did. And I ended up getting that job. And that was actually my first one, but it wasn't because I targeted them. It wasn't because I did anything different. It is just like you say, very much like a vacant home and in many respects. And then there are some things that are different, but for the most part, it pretty much is like vacant homes. How would you define what a model home is? Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think it's a bit different than regular residential homes, right? right, With dealing with home sellers. Absolutely. A model home is actually a builder's chance to kind of show off, you know, show off his craftsmanship, show off his design details, show off his style, whether it's architecturally speaking or whatever. It really is their chance to kind of show potential buyers what makes them different from all the other homes out there. And it's kind of fun because this is this is their time to shine. This is their time to show off. And, you know, they do some really interesting things that would not be typical in a regular vacant home. You know, they want to push the envelope. They want to do some kind of design that's, that's over and above. They want people to walk in and say, wow, what a unique 
great builder you are, if it's, you know, like a higher end home, or if it's more of a, you know, mid-priced home, they want to see the attention to detail and, and the amenities that are involved in the home itself, as well as the neighborhood it's in. So there's a lot of things that are really cool about model homes, because it really gives the builder a chance to show off his design, the location, and how it meets that person or family's needs. And I think, uh, you know, it's great. And we love being part of that because we want to help them show off. We want to help them shine and we want to help them stand out. So. So can you walk us through a little bit about the process of working with builders and investors? Because obviously they already come with design ideas or is that something that you provide too? Is that part of your process? Well, they actually do come with a lot of design ideas and details before they even meet with us because they're working with architects and engineers and all these other people. And, you know, that's from the ground up if they're building something new. And by the time they get it up, framed, you know, is one of the first times that we get to go in. We don't have a lot of say necessarily on their design finishes. We have helped builders before. We've helped them pick out tile and lights and things like that. But for the most part, like in a higher end home, there are so many people involved that they've got it all planned out. And it's a great opportunity to sit down with that builder and say, ask him what his vision is, what how he sees this house. You know, you talk about the demographic buyer, you talk about the neighborhood, you talk about his design selections and finishes, because we want to make sure all that stands out for him. So in that sense, it is different than your average vacant home, because there's so much more that we really want to highlight. And we have that chance from the very beginning. It's not, you know, like a vacant home, it's already done. It is what it is. Sometimes it's older, sometimes it's not. But model homes are really great in that sense, where it gives you a lot of creativity. I think with regular residential home, a lot of times we do a bit handholding because the seller may not be understanding what exactly staging is. Do you find that's true with builders? Uh, no, not really. They pretty much know what they want. I just met with a builder a couple of weeks ago who was building this massive home. And, you know, he's very set with what he wants. You know, he wants a specific style. He wants every room in the house staged. And that includes six bedrooms. And I'm doing my best to talk him out of that because that's so much work. Right. <laughs> and I should be happy and grateful. And I am that we can do that much work. But I just think, you know, that's a lot of work. But he's very set in what he wants. He's very set with his design finishes. You know, they may send me a, a design board with their lighting picked out, with their tile, with their paint colors way ahead of time before it's even in the home or implemented into the home. And that gives us a nice amount of time, hopefully, to really hone in on the look he's going for, because it is different than a regular vacant home in the sense that we ask the homeowner in a regular vacant home to trust us, to trust our vision, to trust that we are the experts and we know what we're doing. And we still are the experts in model homes, but it's a there's a big part of communicating with that builder with the vision he has, because again, this is his chance to show off and, and to hopefully get business from it because he can do these unique things. And we have to work with him in that sense to really make it stand out. That's very cool. So I'm a little bit curious about what is a proposal process like for you usually? Because I think for residential home, which is what I used to do all the time, 
it's very short, right? You go right. in, you go do the estimate, you send a proposal and that's it. But yeah. it sounds like with builders, there's a lot more communication involved. They're going to go through their design process and the demographic that they want to hit. So what is that process like for you when you are pulling your proposal together? Is it kind of like an interior design project almost where you have to give them the idea of what you want to do? No, not necessarily. I never like put my, all my cards on the table, so to speak, right? But we just assure them that we can meet their vision of what they're looking for. The process itself is much lengthier for the most part. I mean, like I said, the builder I met with a couple of weeks ago, he won't be done for another month. Now we've already met with him twice because he's still in a very early construction state and I'm not sure he's going to make his own deadline. But because there's so much stuff that isn't done. I mean, the drywall wasn't up the first time. There's certainly no finishes. There's no tile. There's no lighting. There's nothing in there. So it's harder to get, you know, a detailed, I'm a visual person. I like to see it in person. I mean, he can send me all the paperwork he wants, but I still want to see how it comes together in person. So I typically go out as he is going through this process. Now, if it's, if it's a, you know, another model home, we've done it where builders have said, Hey, I need this done in two weeks. It's ready for you. Then I go out, I preview it. It's just like any other vacant home. You know, as far as like the detail and the work involved, it is a little bit more than your typical vacant home. You know, we really focus on elevating the detail of a model home. You know, with with a vacant home, we want to be sure that we target the buyer. We want to be sure that we create a focal point in every space. We want to create the purpose for every space. We want to make sure everything flows correctly so it just feels good to a buyer when they come in. But with a model home, we elevate that by going into more detail, whether it's more stuff. And and that's typically what it is, whether it's more rooms, whether it's higher end items, you know, with model homes too, you can't ever use any furnishings. And I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but stuff, you know, you move it around, it gets dinged and banged and dirty. And you can never do that in a model home. You really have to have more sound, sturdy pieces that are definitely either appear to be new or are new because they're going to get some wear and tear in there. And we don't want to have that reputation where we've brought in things that don't stand up or that are dirty or that seem dated, anything like that. So it's it's a huge investment on our part to make sure that we have the right things if we're doing it this way. Now, I know a lot of people who work with builders, a builder will give them a budget and say, okay, this is what I want. So that's completely different. You know, then there's more handholding, there's more one-on-one, there's more meetings, there's more of all that. But typically what we've done is we've provided the staging for the builder and we're paying for it up front. So we kind of control that part of it. We do that ourselves. So yeah, when they're paying for it, there's definitely more handholding. But when we're taking charge and we're saying, yeah, we can do this model home for you in two weeks, we ask them to trust our vision. And like I said, we just elevate it compared to a regular vacant home in that is an existing home because we really want it to stand out whether it is completed and sitting there empty or a builder is 
still creating the vision. You know, all depends on where the builder's at and what needs to be done and how much needs to be done. So we're it's it's more of a personalized experience as far as what we will do and what we will accomplish without having that builder necessarily tell us what he wants. You know, we, of course, ask them what his vision is. We talk about the neighborhood. We talk about the demographic. We talk about the finishes that he's putting in. So we want to, we want him to be assured. We're very confident in what we're doing and hopefully he trusts us and we just move forward with that. I love that. It's definitely much more details than a residential project. I remember, I like that you were talking about you need sturdy furniture. This happened to us with one project when we did it for a builder. I didn't know this until we went to the stage Mm -hmm. that he was moving our furniture around his model units. Yeah. Oh, And they broke a couch. So it was something that you just never know how someone else is going to hand, like, handle your furniture or even they're going to move your furniture we didn't know that at all right and you think about modeled homes that might be open seven days a week where all these families come in and they let their kids run around and jump on your sofa or jump on the bed I mean we've gone back to model homes and the beds collapsed and I mean we're using a real bed and a real mattress but like the boards the slats underneath have been broken whether they jumped on it or I'm not sure what happened but so yeah you have to make sure it's good sturdy furniture and you have to accept the fact that people are going to touch it and sit in it which kind of makes me crazy you know because when we do a regular vacant home we say this is for aesthetic purposes only not to be used in any way right so with a model home I've had things stolen out of model homes. I've had furniture damaged out of model homes. I've had all kinds of problems that I wouldn't normally have in a regular residential vacant home because there are so many people. And there are neighborhoods around here where a builder will just keep the home open all day long with no one in there, which makes me crazy. You know, I mean, and that's one of the homes that I had several things stolen out of. And I told the builder I wasn't happy and I didn't understand why someone wasn't at the house while it was open and he didn't have any security camera. He ended up putting in a security camera, but that was after the fact that I had several items stolen. And I'm talking like a big round mirror, a lot of accessories. I mean, just all kinds of crazy stuff. How do you put that under your coat, right? I mean, how do you put a big 36 inch mirror under your coat and nobody says, hey, what's that? So I know someone has someone's got to seeing that mirror gun carry out. That's crazy. Yeah. 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 So there's more risk with model homes on your stuff, you know, getting damaged, dirty, stolen. There's more risk to you, especially when you're providing it. Now, if the builder were providing it, we actually do work with one builder and we take his same stuff from unit to unit to unit. We take it out of one unit, we put it in another one, set it up very similar to what just sold. And we do that. And honestly, that's all his stuff. So I don't worry about it. I don't worry if something's damaged or something's broken. But when I have to go back and pick up my stuff and I see it damaged, not there, it's, you know, it's not fun in any. It's really upsetting. I assume that you write it in your contract that they need to be responsible for that. Yeah. And that builder who, where I had a lot of things stolen, he did pay for the items. And what we do is we always take an inventory list. We take photos of every inch of that space. So like when I look at a shelf and I think, you know, cause it was like on a shelf too, whomever stole the stuff, what they did, I ended up going back for something to this house. And I looked at a shelf and I thought, hmm, 
that's not how I would have styled it. And I kept thinking, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with that? So I looked at my original photo and what they had done was they had stolen about four things off my shelves and they rearranged things. They pushed them further apart. So it didn't look like there was a gap. Like there's a hole here where they took a vase. They kind of pushed the other things closer together. But I kept thinking that doesn't look like I would have left it that way. I knew, I knew, I know how I stage, right? And I, I would not have left something that did not look right. And it didn't look right to me. So I went back through my photos and, you know, they'd stolen vases, cutting boards, mirrors, all kinds of stuff. So, yeah. That's crazy. Right. I mean, seriously, if somebody needs that stuff so badly, just say, Hey, I need that stuff really badly. And I would say, there you go. Take it. Right. (laughs) I mean, but it's just the fact that you feel violated, taken advantage of, you know, somebody feels they're entitled to your stuff when you work hard for it. it it's just very unnerving, that feeling when people just take your stuff. So I know that's, that's part of the not fun. That's part of the really unpleasant part, I would say, working in the vacant side of business. I mean, we had had funny stuff stolen, I think. I think once, probably a college kid, all our light bulbs went missing when we no. went to staging. <laughs> I swear that happens to me too, Cindy. I put in all these nice bulbs, which are crazy expensive now, and I pick up my lamps and I have those horrible little swirly fluorescent ones. And it's like, I don't use those. And I have them in almost every lamp I pick up. And it's like this really stinks because then I have to go out and buy more bulbs that people just take. I mean, these are LED lights, uh, bulbs, right? They're more expensive. They last forever. And yet when I pick up my stuff, they've all been replaced. And it's like, <laughs> doesn't make that me sounds happy. like the contractor because at least they changed it back to like something well crappier, <laughs> but still <laughs> at least they yeah. replaced it. I know. I know it. Yeah. It's it's hard. Like sometimes, yeah, I think this is the side of business that really grinds people down. It's the things that you don't see, right, on HGTV. Right. right. When you realize how much work this job is and you work so hard to do your best and you invest a lot of money into doing this job and then somebody does stuff like that, you know, that's that is the bad side of the business. So Yeah. Is there any trick to bounce back from it? You know what? Yeah, you just keep moving forward. You know, like I said, if they need it that badly, let them have it. It doesn't matter to me. I mean, I look at all my staging inventory. I'm not personally attached to anything. It's business for me. I buy things for business. If somebody's going to steal it, break it, vandalize a home. And we've had that happen too, where they took everything. I mean, if they need it that badly, let them have it because I I can't worry about that. I have to move on and do my next job. So, you know, it's exactly, the same, but it is what it is. So it is. And so it sounds like usually the builders have a pretty set design when you come into the project. So they already got finishes done, all mm-hmm. sorts of, you know, cabinets and hardware and all that. So right. how do you approach creating a cohesive, attractive design for the model home? And sometimes you might have to compromise your design, right? Because, It might not necessarily be the usual style that you do. Right. Well, you know, I think the key to keeping a cohesive design is to have a cohesive style, to have cohesive quality, to have cohesive service, all those things that you do in any home that you stage. And, you know, again, with model homes, you always want to try to put your best things in there because this represents the builder and showcasing his work. So, but yeah, as long as the quality is cohesive, the style and and the work that you're providing for him, I think it all works. 
because you yeah. can't have, you, you know, you certainly can't go out and buy everything new for every model home you do. So you mix it up a little bit, right? So you look at something and you think, where do I have to make an impact? What has to really be something that will stand out and be a showcase for him. And, you know, those are the pieces that you might go out and invest in and say, okay, I need an amazing piece in the entry because that sets the tone for the home. Or I need a lot of seating in the living room because, you know, this is a big family home. So whatever that is, you might want to go out and get those unique pieces, but then you supplement with your other best stuff that you have available. I know it's a lot of inventory juggling for sure. Do you buy new stuff for every new model home project? Um, I usually do. There's usually something new, not all anymore. But before, when I first started doing model homes, it was like all pretty much all new because I knew I needed to raise the bar with the quality. I needed to raise the bar with the current styles and even look at styles that might not be necessarily have caught on yet, but I see a lot of it coming down the pipe. So if this is a model home that's going to sit for a couple of years, I'll risk doing a design feature or element or something that in two years, it's like, oh yeah, well, she really knew that this is the trend and this is the style and this is what we want because you have to be really careful not to put in dated things, older things, because these model homes are have to sit sometimes, you know, anywhere from a few months to a couple of years. And it has to look fresh and it has to look new and it has to look like the things that buyers are seeing when they're going shopping. You can't, you know, you can't have old looking stuff. So, yeah, I think the design background for the Sager has to be really strong or it has to be very well researched. So Mm -hmm. how do you do the trend forecasting? How do you know what's coming down the pipeline? Well, you know, the Las Vegas market was one of my favorite places to go. I love that. I've been to all of them. I've been to the one in Atlanta, the one in Dallas, the one in New York at the Javits Center. But I got to tell you, the Las Vegas one is still my favorite out of all of them. It's easy to navigate. You kind of know who the vendors are and what you like and what you're looking for. And that's a great place. Not I don't necessarily go to the market and make a big purchase, but I am looking. I am touching, feeling, looking at all this stuff. And then when I come back and I have a specific project, then I will place an order because I still consider myself, even though I've got so much stuff and I've got a huge warehouse, I still consider myself a boutique business. I am involved in every project still, and I like it that way. I want it to be that way by choice. And so when I'm uh, doing a model home, I want to take look at that home and think, oh, yeah, when I was in Las Vegas, I saw this vendor and this is the person that's going to have the right piece. So if you have the time to order, that's amazing. Right. But like I said, sometimes that doesn't happen. Sometimes they'll say, hey, I need it done in two weeks. And then you work with what the best you have with what you have or you shop local where you can buy it off a floor somewhere which is few and far between here in Kansas City but that's an option too but yeah the more planning you can do so you want to visit the markets you want to see all the latest design trends you want to watch HGTV because you want to see what they're talking about and what styles they're doing you want to shop right who doesn't love to shop but you want to go to these stores and see in person the look the feel the texture of everything that is in 
in, look through magazines, you know, get great design books. I love buying, a, you know, I've got so many design books that I'll just sit and leaf through and something will stand out. And it's like, wow, that's amazing. I want to try to incorporate that into a project down the line. So I'll make notes or take a picture of it or tear it out or whatever I need to do. But, you know, you always want to be educating and being aware of what's out there always. And you always want to know what the new trends are. You want to, whether you like them or not, whether you want to purchase them for your inventory or not, you need to know what the trends are and what's going to come and stay for a while and what's going to come and probably be out very quickly. So you just want to be aware of all that stuff. And as far as like what you purchase, your big pieces, your sofas, your dining tables, beds, transitional, clean lines, you can't go wrong because you can switch it up. And, and I'm talking, you know, you, whether you're using it in a regular residential home or a model home, you can change the look of a dining room. If you've got like a basic table, they're all wood top for the most part, right? Some might be a little bit different. Some might be marble or something else. But if you invested in a nice wood dining room table, you can switch up the chairs and create a totally new look. You can switch up the rug, you can switch up the accessories, the mirror, a sideboard or another piece of furniture and have a totally different look, but yet you've invested in that big piece. It's kind of like sofas. I always buy sofas that are transitional, that I can use in a modern house, that I can use in a transitional home. If I had to down the road, use in a traditional home. And again, switching up the coffee tables, the pillows, the colors, the rugs, things like that. But when you invest in your big pieces, get a piece that you know you can use in any design style. And that's going to be that's going to help you always. I mean, I've got sofas, you know, most of the time I buy straight lines, clean lines, and we can stack them vertically in our warehouse. And, you know, I used to buy a lot of Chesterfield sofas, which, cause we had a lot of traditional homes here. And then I realized those are really hard to store and I can take a straight line sofa that I can store easier and put more of a traditional ottoman with it or a traditional coffee table to create the look that I might need to for that house. But if you stick along the lines of something more modern, clean lines, especially with your big pieces, you'll be able to mix it up. And then they always look fresh. I mean, it's it's inexpensive to replace pillows. It's, you know, you can always add new art that changes the whole look and feel of a home. Your accessories, you can switch out. But the big pieces, you don't want to keep buying them every year or every two years. You want to get some good use out of them. Exactly. I love transitional. It's basically all I did. Because in the Bay Area, we have a lot of older homes, you know, uh -huh. like Victorians and things. Right. And yeah. obviously no one wants the Victorian interior to live in modern time. <laughs> right, right. So transitional yeah. work really well in the Bay Area. Oh, and absolutely. yeah. And like you said, it's so much easier to buy pillows, yeah. to buy art, to buy accessories versus the larger pieces. Sure. Yep. And then it just always looks fresh. I mean, I do that in my own home. I've had the same furniture in my home for a long time. And my home does not look dated, doesn't look old, because I switch the other things out and it always looks fresh. You know, whatever that, you know, I can add some boucle pillows and I can add some more texture now because that's the hot trend right now. But, you know, 10 years ago with the same sofa, I had different pillows. I had a different, you know, coffee table. So just changing it up, it always looks fresh. So I practice that in my own life too. Yeah. And when you're working with builders, let's say you want to do something that's new, like the new mm -hmm. trend, for example, do you ever get pushback from the builder? If so, how do you handle that? 
I actually never have gotten pushback because I think by the time we are doing the job, there has been some trust established, whether it's several meetings with them, like if, you know, it's an ongoing process, or if it's just like a two week turnaround, when you show them your confidence in what you're doing, they trust you, you know, you've got, you ask them to look at your website and give a sample of your style and what you like and what you do. And they're good with that. I really have never gotten any pushback. So I, I consider myself lucky, I guess. I think it's because you have a very strong point of view with your staging. So and also very consistent through your portfolio. So the builders really know if I'm hiring Helen, this is exactly the look that I want. Right, right. And that's what they want. They'll say, oh, I saw this, right? And it's like, okay, well, that's the sofa I use all the time. And, you know, but I can adapt it to, you know, is their lighting really modern? You know, do I put in more modern chairs? Do I put in, you know, so I can switch it up based on their finishes and their detail. And then it looks fresh and it doesn't look like something they said they saw. And yet they still love it. So, yeah. And would you say they usually know the target demographic really well in terms of their buyers? So how do you incorporate that into your staging? Well, when we also like research the neighborhood a little bit, see what other homes are around, see what other builders are building in the neighborhood, what their styles look like, you know, try to get a good idea of what's happening. The demographic, as far as like the details in the furnishings, you know, if it's a lower end home, we're going to do something really nice, but not over the top where, you know, a first time buyer is going to say, oh, I can't afford this kind of stuff, but we're going to do something nice that they think, yeah, this is perfect for me, right? Whether it's a young buyer, first-time buyer. So it really depends on the demographic. And we do our research to figure out who that is, you know, and that factors into the neighborhood, the price of the home, the size of the home, a lot of things. And we know that going in. We know that before we're staging. So and what are some of the common challenges you run into when you're staging model homes? I would say time is number one, okay? Because if somebody says to me, hey, I need this done in two weeks for the parade and it needs to look fantastic, right? And I think to myself, oh, if I had a little more time, I could get that special piece, that piece that when you walk in says, wow, right? So time always, the energy level it takes to do a model home, like I said, sometimes that's two, I think with this upcoming project, it's going to be a three-day install just because it's so big. So that's exhausting. The amount of inventory that you're putting into a home, the cost to have that inventory to put in a home. So all these are big challenges. But I would say the biggest one is probably time because if I had a lot of time, I could buy wholesale and have it shipped here. I could take my, you know, I, I hate being in a panic mode to have something because then you overspend. And then after a while you think, why did I buy that? That's not right. And it ends up being a total waste. And so if I have the time, I can really think it through and plan it and make the best decisions financially, creatively, in every way possible, if it's time. I think that's the biggest challenge with a model home because builders expect something better. They expect something really good. And I want to deliver that. And, you know, I'm the one who's staying up all night, lying in bed at two in the morning thinking, oh, what am I going to use? What am I going to get? What kind of art do I need? Where am I going to get art this size? You know, because you have a two-story living room and a huge stone fireplace and I need something gigantic and where do I get it? And this is what I think about at two in the morning. And it's like, if I had time, 
I'd be doing that during the day, going through my resources and thinking, okay, I can get this. I can order this. It'll be here on time. So I would say time is my biggest challenge in doing a model home because of the expectation of what the builder wants. And we want to deliver it. And I believe we always have, but it can be very stressful if you don't have the right time to do it. Yeah, I would think so. Although I think a lot more money on the line and those are multiple projects oh, as well. So Yes, right. And that's part of the time thing because like I said, when you have more time, you can buy more selectively. You can order wholesale if that's an option. You can look for a better deal somewhere on something. But if you're rushed and it's like, I don't care, I'll just pay whatever, I need it. And that's always bad. That's bad for me, so. Yeah. What's your normal lead time on projects like these? Model homes, anywhere from, like I said, two weeks to this one that we're working with, this really huge house. We've been talking to him on over a month now, and we still have another month to go. So that's unusual, you know, to have that, you know, what a couple other times I've had builders give me like three months or two months notice. And I love that because then I can find those really cool pieces and make his house stand out, you know, and then you've got builders. I've got one who's got another gigantic house on the lake. And he told me last fall, he wanted me to stage it for the spring parade. And that's next month. And I haven't heard from him. And it's like, I hope he doesn't come to me at the last minute because the last house I did for him, this is horrible to say, but I'm going to tell you, you might want to edit this, but it was so far away to go preview. And I thought, I'm not going to get it because I, it's a huge house and it was, he wanted like three floors done. And I thought, I'm not going to get him. I'm going to charge him a lot. And I don't want to waste my time three hours driving just to go look at this. So I gave him a bid and I told him I did it based on his photos and I gave him a bid and he's like, okay, can you do it next week? And it's like, oh my God. And, you know, it was like, holy crap, it needed to be done the next week. And there was so much stuff. And because I wasn't out there, I saw pictures online, but you know how pictures are, they're deceiving, right? They're not true to scale. And so all these rooms that looked average or normal, they were huge when I got there. And it's like, oh my gosh, I don't have enough stuff. So that's stress, right? And that was my fault. I'll never do that again. But I really thought I wouldn't get that job. You know, I just really did not expect to get that job, but I did. And he's the same builder, actually, who says he wants me to do this job for him in April, but I haven't heard from him yet. So I hope he doesn't think I can just pull it out like I did last time because I won't be able to, you know. Yeah, let me roll up my magic carpet there. <laughs> I think expectations from builders can be unrealistic too. You know, like I said, they'll look at something and even like a smaller average home, they'll look at maybe a picture of a house I did that might be a $2 million house and say, oh yeah, I really love that. That's what I want. Well, that's not really what you'll get. You know, you'll get the aesthetic of what's there, but not necessarily those furnishings, you know? So I, I don't know that they realize um, that sometimes their expectations are not realistic, but we, we, you know, like I said, we do our best to make everybody happy and we have never had somebody say we're not happy. So I'm not going to wait for that too. That's great. So when they come in with the wrong expectation, like we just, what, like you just mentioned, how do you deal with that to course correct that expectation? Well, you 
again, have a conversation about the demographic buyer and you explain to them what your goal is to do. And that is to show off the features of the home, the focal point, create a flow. And then, like I said, we just add that extra detail. We elevate the detail. So they're always happy, but we have to bring them back to the place where we say, this is your buyer. This is what their expectations are. And we're going to meet that. And we do so. But it's not what you'd see in a $2 million house. It could be like a $300,000 house and they're going to love it. So I love that. And when they come to you with a limited budget, how do you deal with that? Like, how do you prioritize the staging elements? And how do you communicate that with the builder? Well, you know, we have to explain to them the costs involved, you know, sometimes in running our business. We're a professional company. We've got warehouse expenses, taxes, insurance, labor, movers, furnishings, right? And so we want to do everything we can from that for them. But if they say, I only have this much money to work with, then we say, okay, let's focus on the main rooms. This is where buyers get excited and know that this is a house that's going to work for them. We don't have to do the basement. We don't have to do the secondary bedrooms. We can just do these main areas and really knock it out of the park. And, you know, they're okay with that. Because their goal is to, you know, I've gone into a lot of homes and I've worked with a lot of builders, Cindy, and it's rare that a builder wants the entire house done. Now, this upcoming project, he wants it all done. And I'm still trying to talk him out of it, but he wants it all done. And that's rare. I keep telling him, you know, I've done this with a lot of builders. We've never done the secondary bedrooms. We've never done, you know, these lower level rooms that are not important. But he's like, I know, but I don't want people just to look and walk away. And it's like, well, you know what? They're making their decision when they first walk in the house. They're making their decision to buy this house based on the main level and how it's going to fit their needs as a family or whatever. And I said, by the time they get to the secondary bedrooms, by the time they get to a yoga room in the basement or an exercise room, they've already decided this is a perfect fit for them. That one or two spaces are not going to be deal breakers, not in a model home. I mean, because they're all pretty nice. Yeah. And it sounds like you have some really long-term contracts, like even going into a couple years. How do you go back to do a refresh for the builders? You know, sometimes I'll ask them, like I'll say to them, hey, are you planning on putting this house on the parade of homes? Because they usually have somebody come in and clean it. So I'm okay with that. And, you know, even though stuff might get moved around a little bit, does anybody really notice that other than me? I know I'm a little neurotic, but does anybody really notice it? Not for the most part, but if a builder is doing, like if he's had a house on the market for several months and it's one of his models and I'll say to him, Hey, is this going to be on the parade of homes this year or this spring or this fall? And he'll say, yeah. And I'll say, well, Hey, let me stop by and tweak and make sure everything's in place and just freshen it up. So I'll do that for them. And I don't even charge them for that because, you know, these are builders who are happy and we're long-term if they're going season to season, my stuff is in there and I'm making money. So I, that's the least I can do is swing by when I'm in that area and say, let me come in and just fluff it up a little bit. So. Yeah. That's a part of it. I think the, the, the nicer service, right. You're just included that into your, and you build that into your pricing as well right. so that yeah. you are still making money. Right. So I'm not going to send them a bill for a hundred dollars and say, Oh, I stopped by. It's like, that's part of it. That's part of their service that we want to stand out with. That's part of, everything. You know, we want them to be happy and we want them to feel like they made the right decision with us. And we want them to think it can stay here another month, another month, another month. 
Yeah. And have you ever done projects where it's like a building, but you got multiple units to stage? So maybe they give you a studio, a one bedroom and two bedroom, et cetera. And oh. how do you approach that staging? Because obviously they can't look cookie cutter. Right. And they still right. need to be cohesive. Yep. We're actually doing that this week. We've got two homes in the same neighborhood that are very different. It's probably the same demographic buyer. One feels a little bit more modern. And because of the way the bedrooms are situated, it could be a young family that would move into that. Whereas the other one could be an older couple downsizing. So we'll take that into consideration. Again, what's cohesive is the quality. What's cohesive is the style. What's cohesive is the service. And then we mix it up and have fun depending on the finishes and who that demographic buyer is. Love that. I think it's a bit tricky if it's, if the unit is suitable for either a couple downsizing or a young family. And how do you deal with that? Because they're pretty extreme, I think, on the spectrum. Yeah. And that's happened many times. You know, I'll, I'll say to my girls when we're working, okay, I think this is going to be a couple downsizing because all the bedrooms are in the basement. And except for the primary bedroom, that's up on the first floor. So this is probably going to be an older couple who's downsizing. And it turns out it's a young couple and they want their kids away from them. So it's like, I tried, but you know what? And again, if you, you if we use transitional furniture for the most part, that works for almost any age group. So it's not going to look fuddy-duddy like grandma's stuff is in here. And it's not going to be too modern where it would turn off somebody downsizing. You know, they're going to think this is fresh and new and I love this. You know, it's time to start over. So it, we try, but we don't always get it right, but we try to. So Yeah. Ultimately, I think the staging looks good. Then it really appeals to a broad range of people. And it sounds like with your loan projects, how do you approach billing for them? Because obviously it's very different than like a residential project. Yeah. You know, we actually do something very similar to our residential projects because, you know, I've been told by builders, oh, we plan on keeping this here for six months or a year, right? So I will bill them for the first 30 days, which includes, you know, the labor, the design plan, the movers coming in, coming out, and the furniture. And that's one fee. And then I say, okay, monthly after that, it's X amount of dollars. And he's like, all right, we'll probably have it for 12 months. And it's like, that's fine. They're fine with that. But then sometimes they call and say, hey, there was somebody who really wanted to buy this house and we're moving our model to another one. So we need you to get your stuff out of here. So it's happened. So it goes anywhere from a couple of months to years. And we're prepared for that. So that's why we do it monthly a month. And we explain that to the builder up front. And, you know, sometimes they'll say, well, if I have it in for a year or two, will you cut me a break? And I think our prices are really fair for what we do. And we're giving up that inventory for that amount of time and it's good inventory. So it's like, this is what it is. And, you know, for the most part, I had one guy who was not happy with me a couple of weeks ago. And he's like, he thought I should give him a break and not charge him monthly. And it's like, I said, you know, if you went to any place like court furniture, and you had this stuff out for two years, they would charge you for two years worth of renting it, not just one month when you take it. And I said, our business is no different than that. And so he he wasn't happy and he walked away and that's okay. Cause you know what? You choose the clients you want to work with. And it's really nice to be in a position that when that happens, I don't lose sleep over that. Cause I think I don't want to work for somebody like that. You know, there are so many other people who value and appreciate what you do. And that's where you focus your efforts. I know, right? Don't waste those energy yeah. on those people. Yeah. yeah. And also court furniture won't refresh it for free, but you no. would. 
<laughs> and it's going to be used furniture too, for the most part, I bet, you know? So, and I remember one time I was, see, we have a policy where we don't put our furniture into homes where people live. Cause I don't want to pick up used furniture. So we only do vacant homes or model homes with our furniture nobody lives there. Somebody might sit on it. There might be an open house, a broker's open, something. But that's pretty much the wear and tear for the most part. But I won't put furniture where somebody lives because I I used to, I would pick it up. And I can remember one time there were like these orange stains on my white sofa. And it's like, what in the world is this? I could not figure out what all these orange stains were. And when we removed the cushions, there were some Cheetos under there. So that was the orange stain. And I thought, you know what? I don't want to deal with, hey, look, this came in clean. You got to clean it. You got to replace it. I don't want to do that anymore. So we made that our policy. And I know Court or a lot of other companies don't do that. So, you know, you could end up with a sofa. It's probably been clean, but, you know, people use it. There's, do you ever go into like a used furniture store? And I do because I love, I mean, I'm telling you what, I love a good bargain. I love shopping in non-traditional places. I love that, finding something really cool, but I am really weird about fabrics. I don't want the smell. I don't want the wear and tear. I don't want the stains. I don't, I don't want any of that, you know? And so I, yeah, I, it worked out best for us to change our policy, but. It is hard because a lot of times we get, we only did occupied towards the end of our staging business, only if it's like really old client, like VIP. Mm-hmm. And I'll be like, I don't really do, usually do Occupy, but I would. Yeah. It's really hard because people yeah. live on your furniture mm-hmm. or like you told them that these are really show bedding. We actually mm-hmm. never wash them, even though right. they look very clean. Yeah. And we come back with, you know, like stains on the pillows. Yeah. You know, you know, they slept on it. And right, like right. That. And it's gross. You can't use that. I mean, if you clean it, it, it doesn't look fresh and new anymore, right? Or then you toss it away and it becomes cost prohibitive to run a business that way. You can't keep replacing everything that people say they aren't going to use and they use. So. Yeah. And how do your builders normally find you? Are they typically old clients or they just found you online? Some have found me online, but I think when I first started, it really was about networking and not necessarily with builders. It was networking with people who might have known builders. So, you know, like the Home Builders Association or the Realtors Association or networking meetings where I would talk to a photographer and a photographer would say, oh, I just shot this builder's house. Do you know him? And it's like, no, well, then he might introduce me to him or he might say, go out there and look, you know, going to open houses, going to look at new neighborhoods, just talking to people, because the bottom line is with any kind of business at all, people will do business with you when they know you and like you and trust you. So it doesn't matter what business it is. So it's not a matter of going out there looking for that model home job. It really is just about networking with everybody and anybody and saying, hey, I'm a home stager and nothing might happen for a month or two or a year, but you keep doing it. And eventually something happens and somebody says, well, hey, you know, I know Helen, call her. So I love that. Those are really the best way because they're not competing with you. So they're happy right. to share leads and it yeah. makes them look good if they refer a good stager. Absolutely. Absolutely. Just like you want to refer other good vendors too. Like if you're working with someone and they say, hey, do you know somebody who can clean my windows or replace my carpeting? And you know, they're going to do a good job. You're happy to refer them. And that just puts a feather in your cap because now again, there's another element of trust for you that you are sending in good people to help them. So. Yeah. 
And when you stage model home projects, you also stage like the reception area where places like a conference room where they sit down and do the paperwork and have client discussion and stuff like that. We've done both. We, you know, in the higher end homes, they'll usually have their office actually inside the house in the office created inside the house. So they will have, they will ask for a desk in there and of course a chair and whatever other piece they need for their printer or whatever. So we have done that and they end up using our stuff. I don't like that. We had put one time some really nice light gray leather chairs in a model home that they were using for the office. And when we picked up that light gray leather chair on the back of it, there was a black sharp Sharpie marker and I could not for the life of me, get that out. And I just kept making it worse and worse. And what ended up being a one inch black Sharpie is now like a three inch big diameter. Cause I just kept making it worse and worse. And now the chair's ruined unless I put it up against the wall. So I don't necessarily like that, but we do a lot of work for a builder who they set up in their garage and they bring in their own desk. They bring in their own equipment to hold their printer. They, they will ask us to style their shelves in there. Like they'll do some open shelving in there. They might ask us to put some art in there, but for the most part, they're working pieces. They'll bring in themselves. And that's ideal. Yeah, I think that's ideal as well. They are going to go through a lot, especially yeah. with clients, clients who have kids yeah. and yes, all that stuff. Yeah, writing, scratching your furniture, you know, spilling food, drink. Oh, that's another thing. Drink uh, rings on your furniture, like in an office on a desk. We had that one time too. And and they're like, well, I don't know how that happened. It's like, well, let's see. It was here. You were here. <laughs> so yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's not ideal to do it that way, but we've done it depending on the home and the builder and the relationship. So, you know, at, at a certain point, if it's not usable, then we replace it. So, and it's not, what, the the world. it's not in the world. That's true. And what advice do you have for stagers who want to get into staging model homes? Uh, again, I'd say just get out there and talk to people. Not necessarily builders, but builders, if you can, but just other people, other people in this industry that are related somehow to what you're doing. People at furniture stores, real estate agents, you know, again, going out to neighborhoods, walking through model homes, you know, there might be somebody in there and it's an unstaged model home. You know, there are a lot of empty homes out there too. And you could walk through and talk to the real estate agent and say, hey, you know, I stage if you ever need it, or if I can answer any questions, give me a call without really asking them for the business. You can just say, hey, I'm Helen. This is what I do. If I can help you, if you have any questions, let me know. So I think just putting yourself out there, again, it's about people knowing you, liking you and trusting you, and then it's going to happen. That's great. I mean, this has been an incredible show. I would say you gave so much information in terms of how to work in model homes. To close out our show, what is the number one tip you're going to give to home stagers when it comes to staging model homes? Do your best work always, okay? So that means your best inventory, your best customer service, your best communication. Don't compromise on any of that, quality, service, whatever. This is your chance to really shine. And here's the thing with model homes, you make a builder happy, he's gonna build another one down the road. It's more business for you. You make it look great, people come in, they wanna know who did this and you get business that way, whether it's design work Or if it's somebody saying, I want to sell my house to buy this beautiful model home, I need help. So there's so many ways to get additional business when you do your best work and you don't compromise. So no bad furniture, no dirty furniture, no broken furniture, top service, top quality, and communicate. 
and it just, it works. Everybody says this business, it takes off like a, a snowball effect, right? I mean, you might be struggling, 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 but if you keep doing it and you're consistent, it's going to work out. I love that. That's great advice. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you, Cindy. I appreciate you. So that's it for today's show. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to help and support the show, there are three ways to do so. You can leave a review and rating on iTunes. You can share the show on social media, or you can donate to support the maintaining costs for the podcast. You can make a donation through the show notes or on the sidebar of our site. If you haven't left a review on iTunes, please do so. This will help us grow the show and book more guests. If you have any questions, feedback, and suggestions, you can comment on the show notes. You can also find the show notes by going to stagemore.com slash podcast. That's it. Have a fantastic week and happy staging.